Canaan. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. All right, good to see everybody. It's been a great time already this morning, amen. Some great worship, baptism, a lot of faces returning for the first time. It's so exciting. Uh, we just, we're here for one reason. That's because Jesus is alive. Amen? I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're here every week, not just on Easter Sunday, but that is why we exist as a church. That's, that's what motivates us to, to continue to follow Jesus. Because We're not just following the teachings of a wise person. We're following the risen Savior. We're, got, we're following God in the flesh who dwelt among us, who died in our place and took on our sins so that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life, purpose and direction for now. So the whole reason that we exist as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as Canaan Baptist Church, is because Jesus is alive. And so because of his resurrection, we have so much purpose, and it, it infiltrates every kind of relationship that we can have. And so that's what this whole series is about. Uh, this word vivify, I didn't make it up. It's an actually, it's a, it's a real word, and it means to bring life to, to enliven. And so just like Jesus vivifies us, he also vivifies our relationships. And so that's what this whole series is about. And today, we're gonna be starting by looking in the, the book of 1 John. So if you have your Bible, uh, or you look it up on your, on your phone or tablet, 1 John chapter 1 is where we're going to begin this, this sermon and this series uh, looking at this relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ because he is risen. You know, and as you're looking that up, just what an incredible moment that was. You can read about it in John chapter 20 or, or Matthew chapter 28 uh, or Luke chapter 25 when, when Jesus is out of the tomb when the ladies show up early on that Sunday morning and they're downcast, they're, they're pretty sad. I mean, this whole thing that they were expecting to happen didn't happen and they're confused, they're bewildered, they don't know, they don't know where, where they went wrong. They, they thought that Jesus was the Messiah. They still were holding out hope for that, but they loved him. They didn't know what tomorrow held, but they showed up on this sunny morning to properly, you know, anoint the body in burial. And they get there and the stones rolled away. And of course, they default to what most of us would do. What, what's happened here? Who's, who's opened this tomb up? And who has taken the body? You know, and, and John records that Mary Magdalene, she, she sees what she thinks is the gardener. And she goes over to the gardener. Of course, we all know that the gardener is Jesus, right? And she says, Where, what have you done with him? And then he reveals himself when he simply says her name, Mary. And she falls down at his feet. She clings to him and he says, don't cling to me because I have not yet ascended to my father. But go and tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. And so thus the hope was born, right? That, that he is really alive. And according to, to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in those 40 days that Jesus spent here on earth in his resurrected body, he appeared over 500 people that saw that this dead person had come out of the tomb alive. And so here we are, 2,000 plus years later, worshiping the God-man, Jesus, who is alive. And so John, the apostle John was there. He's one of the two disciples that ran from, you know, from the house they ran to the tomb to verify what the ladies had said. And John makes clear that he tells us he outran Peter to the tomb, which I always find that hysterical. Uh, but John gets there first, and the same John, years later, is writing his gospel. 
And, here's, uh, not, and, and then later after that, he writes this letter. So 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to get you to stand with me to read verses 1 through 4. 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father God, we're just so thankful for this fellowship that we're able to have with you because of Jesus. That Lord, you're not just a distant, transcendent God who's just kind of operating from a distance. You are intimately involved. You are relational. And God, you desire a relationship with us. That's why Jesus came. Jesus, that's why you died in our place, was so we could be forgiven, so we could be restored to that intended relationship that you have with us and that we're able and privileged to have with you, the creator of the universe. So Lord, we, we praise you for this fellowship. So God, I just pray that as we unpack that this morning, that you would just give us understanding, that God, you would just meet with us. And Lord, if there's anybody here or watching online who's not in that fellowship with you yet, does not have that relationship with you yet, that God, today would be the day, the beginning of that eternity-long relationship where there's forgiveness, where there's joy, there's purpose, there's contentment and peace. And God, it's your power of your spirit in us and through us. So Lord, we just lay all this down at your feet for your glory and renown in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. So this uh, interesting word, you know, this, this word fellowship, um, a lot of people have different ideas of what this means. You know, we as Baptists, you know, fellowship means, you know, usually getting together, having fun and eating food. Amen. Yep, that's a good action there. That's, uh, that's some good fellowship, no doubt. But the word actually goes a little deeper than that, right? The Greek word koinonia, it, it really means uh, not, a, not as strong as a contract, but a relational bonding, like a partnership. A partnership is actually a great modern-day English translation of this word, partnership. So just think about that for a second. What does it mean that you're a partner with Jesus? In every aspect of your life. Just kind of, just start doing kind of a, a mental breakdown of the different compartments of your life, right? You have your work life. Is Jesus a partner with you? Are you, better yet, are you a partner with Jesus in your work life? Are you a partner with Jesus in your marriage? Are you a partner with Jesus in your home? Are you a partner with Jesus in your hobbies, on the golf course, on the lake fishing, out when you're hunting with the guys or gals? Are you a partner with Jesus in everything that you do? Because that's kind of getting to the heart of what John is talking about. And this whole partnership is only possible because Jesus is out of the tomb alive. So we're going to talk about partners today. Partners are, are pretty, pretty popular. You know, there's a lot of famous partnerships here in, in culture and through history. Let's just see how well you do. A little, little quiz here. Y'all can answer back. But I'm going to go through some random partnerships that I just randomly picked through my life experience Going back to the 70s, two Southern California detectives featured in the 1970s action TV series, Starsky and Hutch. That's very good. I've, i got to do the slide. That's right. Starsky and Hutch. Another one. 
Started in the 60s, which continues even today, although his partner kind of dropped off some. But the crime-fighting duo faces Gotham's toughest criminals, Batman and... Nice. What happened to Robin? All right, here's more of an obscure one. I don't know why I remembered this one. I didn't even really watch this show much. But the female New York City police officers are the stars of the 80s drama, Cagney and... Wow, you guys are on it. Reruns. All right, now this one was my first choice. <laughs> The pair that causes mischief all over the galaxy in the Millennium Falcon, Han Solo in. Oh, that was pretty weak. Chewbacca, that's right, Chewbacca. All right, next, some of you uh, listened on the radio back in the early, early days. The Lone Ranger in. Tonto, there you go. All right, also kind of 60s, 70s, famous singing duo, Sonny in. All right, Cher, of course, is still alive. All right, great singing duo, singing songs like The Sound of Silence, Blank and Garfunkel, Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. All right, this is my second favorite, my heroes. <laughs> Who are they? Who and Ernie? Bert, Bert and Ernie. Yep, love Bert and Ernie. All right, here's from the video game world. Dominating the Nintendo games, Mario and Luigi. All right, who, who said Luigi? Raise your hand if you got that right. Good job. But put them up again. I want to see some. Put them, put them up again if you got that. Hey, Chuck Angelo, you knew that? Hey, that is, that is awesome right there. Chuck Angelo getting him some Mario and Luigi. All right, here from the 70s, great cartoon, crime-solving dog and his best friend, Scooby and Shaggy. Shaggy? That's right. All right. And then this is from my kids, early childhood. They love these two, uh, the creations of A. Milne that live in the Hundred Acre Wood, Blank and Piglet, Pooh Bear, Pooh and Piglet. That's right, Pooh and Piglet. All right, just a couple more here from the 1800s, brilliant British private detective and his partner Holmes and Watson. Last one. Let's, let's see if... Only the uh, over 65 crowd can answer this one first. All right, here we go. Phineas and, all right, good job, good job. Well done, well done. Phineas and Ferb, all right. All right, so uh, partnerships, they're popular for a reason. We identify with that. We identify with the fact that we, deep down, we know that we're made for relationships, that we need someone else, whether that's a, a marriage partner, a business partner, just a friend, a buddy to go do things with, we get the need for relationships because God has made us that way. And so this series is about how Jesus brings our various kind of relationships to life. And so that's, that's what we're looking at in this series. So the big thought this morning is because of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, we're able to be saved to an eternal partnership with Jesus, and that partnership's gonna permeate and should permeate every aspect of life, especially the relationships that we have. So um, according to the Apostle John here, these, this gospel message of Jesus results in this fellowship, this partnership that we have with Christ and with one another, fellowship between Jesus, the Father, you, and other believers. So. 
We are going to look at a few things this morning. We're going to look at the source of this partnership, which is the gospel. We're going to look at the terms of this partnership, which is what Jesus calls the new covenant. And we're going to look at how this new covenant is ratified and put into place and put into action between Jesus, you, and other believers. And we're going to start here with Jesus' own words. This is at the first Lord's Supper, Passover. Sometimes it's called the Last Supper. It's the last time Jesus ate with his disciples the Passover meal. And Jesus says this. It's in the middle of the meal. He says, in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. So this concept of covenant. What is, what is a covenant? A covenant is a special agreement. It is a contract, but it involves God in it. It's a contract between you and God, God and you, God and us. And there are certain terms and agreements to this, this covenant that God makes with us. So let's, let's just look at this. Let's look at the source of this partnership, which of course is the gospel. And this is what, um, this is what John is writing about. This is what John is writing about too. He says, what was from the beginning, this is Jesus, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've observed, we have touched with our hands concerning this, the word of life, that life was revealed. So it's all about Jesus, all about what did the apostle John and here the us and we are the, the apostles, what did they see, what did they hear when it came to the person of Jesus Christ? So here's some interesting things that we see here. First, about Jesus, unlike every other world religious leader, how much did Jesus write? Go ahead. How much did he write? How many books of the Bible did Jesus write? Zero. Not a one. You look at every other major world religion, right? Who wrote the Quran? The prophet Muhammad. Who wrote uh, the Book of Mormon? Joseph Smith. And those two are those world religious leaders of that religion. They wrote it all, right? Here, Jesus, the God-man, how much of our Bible did he write? Now we know the, super, the, the, the Holy Spirit supernaturally superintended the whole process, but Jesus himself as a human wrote zero of the Bible. Instead, he trusted, entrusted his apostles and prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament, other writers to write what they had experienced, what they saw, what they heard. What was it about Jesus that radically changed their lives? And we know what it was that changed their lives was not simply the good teaching that Jesus had taught. I mean, a lot of times, most of the people didn't even understand what Jesus was talking about until later, right? We see that. The apostles did not understand until after the resurrection what Jesus was talking about. So it wasn't just his teaching. What was it about Jesus that people radically changed their lives? What was it about Jesus that called this man named Saul who is on his way up to Damascus to persecute the church, to arrest the church, to even imprison and kill church members, to in a moment totally convert to a 180 degree turnaround, that's called repentance, right? And he became one of the greatest leaders in the church. What was it that caused that? It's because he saw the resurrected Jesus alive. The man that he knew to be on the cross, crucified, he knew to have died, he knew to have been buried, and at that time, Saul had probably bought into the conspiracy theory espoused by the Jews that Matthew talks about in his gospel, that the Jewish leaders paid off the guards to say simply that somebody robbed the grave. 
he probably bought into that. But when Jesus encounters the powerful, the majestic, risen Savior Jesus Christ, changes Saul's life. And later we know him as Paul, because he starts going by his Greek name instead of his Hebrew name. And we know the radical change. John's life is radically changed. Peter's life is radically changed. Why don't they just go back to fishing after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection? They can't. Their life's been changed too much to simply go back to doing what they were doing. So here's John. This is 60 years later that John's writing this gospel. This is in about 90 AD when John's writing this. And what is he talking about? He's still talking about, here's what we saw. Here's what we heard. Here's what we touched with our hands. And John's probably recalling, touching the nail holes in Jesus' wrist, seeing the, the spear wound in Jesus' side, seeing all those things that authenticated that this really is the guy that was on the cross and that physically died, but he is alive. John is sharing this gospel because Jesus truly changed lives. It's not just a way of thinking. There's a total transformation that takes place in the person of Christ. And because they were totally changed, because this was such great news, they spread the good news to everyone they could see and everyone they knew. Here is John, 60 years later, still spreading the good news, not just verbally, but here he is writing it down because John is a partner with Jesus. He is in that partnership, that fellowship with Jesus. So what all did they witness? Just talk about that. What is, what is the gospel? What was it that John talks about here that he saw, that he observed, that he handled with his hands? Well, they knew that, that Jesus is, was God in the flesh. He, he knew that. He experienced that. That's what the purpose of John's gospel is. I mean, the apostle John starts his gospel talking about the deity of Jesus, where he says in verse one of chapter one, he says, in the beginning was the what? The word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He goes on and talks about how everything that was made was made in him and through him. Paul echoes that in Colossians where he says, you know, talking about the, the, the preeminence of Jesus, how everything was made by him and for him and through him. Nothing was, everything was made that was made. I mean, it's powerful truth about Jesus being God. And, and then in John, back to John chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about verse 14. Then that word became flesh and dwelt among us. God had become flesh. And so this is what John remembers. This is what John is telling that he saw, that he handled, that he heard. They also saw Jesus die. The apostle John is the only one of the 12 that was actually right there at the cross when Jesus was crucified. Friday morning, the disciples were all terrified. They would run for their lives and they were hiding. Peter denied Jesus three times and the rooster crowed and he's in shame. We don't know exactly what Peter does right after that, but we know John stays right there with Jesus, with Jesus' mother, with Mary Magdalene, and at least those three are at the crucifixion. We know one scene where Jesus is hanging on the cross and we see his, his love, his compassion, even in the midst of unfathomable suffering. He looks at his mom and John and he says, 
Mother, behold your son, son, your mother. Making sure his mom's gonna be taken care of. And he commissions this, this apostle John to take care of his mom. And John says that from that moment on, she came and lived in his house. So John was there. He watched as Jesus cried out his last and gave up his spirit. He watched as the soldiers were coming to break the legs of the others, of all of them, to expedite the death so that they could be dead before the sundown for Passover. As they broke the criminal's legs, they came to Jesus and said, he's already dead. And just to make sure, they took the spear and they jammed it in Jesus' side and blood with water came out, which was an indicator that death had already occurred. His heart was no longer pumping. John saw that. When he says, what I've observed, he saw God die. They watched him as they took Jesus down and put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. John lived through that difficult Friday night and Saturday. You know, yesterday, some of my family said, what, well, wonder what it was like for the disciples on Saturday. Saturday, we don't know what happened Saturday. Saturday had to be just a rotten day for them. What do you do? Last three years of your life, you were on cloud nine, and you were the inner circle of the king of all kings. You were in the inner circle of the one who's going to save not just Israel, but save the whole world. Now, what do you do? Day after, you live through that day. And can you imagine early that Sunday morning, Peter and John, the other disciples in the house together, and here comes Mary. She knocks on the door. And interesting, Jesus first appears to the women. That was very counterculture back then. He elevated the role of women. And, but the women are the ones that see Jesus first. They run back and tell the disciples, and Peter and John, they literally have a foot race to the empty tomb. And John is the first one there. The Bible says when John looks in and Peter goes in and he's gone, it says that John believed. He believed in that moment. John remembers this. He remembers the excitement of seeing the empty tomb. He remembers the excitement of looking in and still seeing the linen clothes laying there, folded neatly, which meant Jesus is not coming back. That this was all, this wasn't just a, a grave robber where they would take, take everything. If the clothes were left, they would just be a mess. No, this was, this was well taken care of. And so John believed, he knew, he was excited, he, he experienced that burst of hope. He remembers that, and he's still writing about that 60 years later. It's an unforgettable moment, just like for many of us. We had that moment in time when we, where Jesus revealed himself to us through the gospel, that he loves us. Yes, he loves me, he loves you individually. That the creator of the universe, the king of all kings, knows you by name, he knows everything about you, and he loves you more than you've ever been loved by anyone else, even your mama. Amen? So much so that he died in your place so that you could be saved, delivered, and have everlasting life with him. This Jesus loves you, and John never forgot that, and we can never forget that moment when we first meet Jesus that's what he remembers. That's what they witnessed. And now he's writing not only to probably the church at Ephesus where he writes the letter of 1 John, but also to us, for us to have this fellowship with him, this partnership with Jesus that John has.
What are the terms of this partnership? This new covenant that Jesus makes with us. Back in the Old Testament, God prophesied about this through Jeremiah. He said, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will place my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. Can I get an amen on that? Never again remember their sin. Will separate sin from us as far as the east is from the west. So Jesus comes. He ratifies this new covenant. Later, the author of Hebrews writes this. He says, Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant. So Hebrews is comparing the covenant with Jesus to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Says this, this has been legally enacted on better promises. What are these better promises that we get in this new covenant? What is God's promise? What is God's terms for this covenant and this partnership? First, is that he gives us new life. Isn't that great news? New life. Old things go away. All things become new. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from Paul Paul knows this, he lived this. If any was in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Look, new things have come. For the apostle Paul, before he met Jesus, there was a lot of things, a lot of things there. I mean, he had, he had sat there as they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter eight. Saul was there, encouraged him, say, rear back and get him. Here, let me, let me hold your coat. Give me your outer garment so you can really rear back and let him have it. He was agging it on. Some of you say he was even the ringleader of the whole thing as he was holding their coats and letting them murder Stephen, one of Jesus' faithful, the first martyr in the book of Acts. And he was on his way, as I mentioned earlier, to arrest, kill other Christians. But when Paul meets Jesus, Radically change in his life. Old things pass away. New things have come. We get new life. We also get everlasting life. We don't need the fountain of youth. We've got everlasting life, amen? Forever and ever and ever. And First John 2 says, this is what he has promised us, even eternal life and you know we talked about here before but you ever just sit back and kind of think about forever kind of hurts our brain you know some of our hymns and songs refer to it like verse four of the old hymn amazing grace when we've been there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. In other words, 10,000 years down the road, we're no closer to the end than we were when we first started. 10,000 years is nothing compared to eternity. Man, it's just... And here's the, here's the reality. Every single one of us are going to live forever. The question is, where? Do we live forever with Christ in glory? 
or separated from his benevolence in the real place called hell. We're all created to be eternal beings. But based on what we do in this little bit of time here, James calls our life here a vapor. But what we do here, the decisions we make here, who we follow here impacts eternity. God promises us forgiveness in this new covenant. Same book, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. Not just some of it, but like we talked about Friday night, all of it, every single bit of it, past, present, and future sin. He promises us an inheritance. And it, that's incredible. I mean, I'm just thankful just to get in, amen? But we get an inheritance along with it. Paul says this in Ephesians, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who's a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So he promises us new life, eternal life, forgiveness, inheritance, but also purpose for this life. Now we have direction, we have focus. Our life is not meaningless, it's meaningful. You compare that worldview to other existing worldviews, like the, probably the most predominant worldview in our culture, secular humanism, which is an atheistic worldview, and you ask people what's the meaning of life, and you get all kinds of different answers, but really for the atheist, there is no meaning in life. It's just, you just make the best of it, and because when you die, that's it. Radically different worldview. We were created with love, with intentionality, with purpose, I mean, we, we use this verse a lot, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, we are his creation, his workmanship, his poema is the Greek word. We get our word poem and poetry from. We're his, we're his masterpiece. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we would walk in them. Like, you know, the Old Testament, David meditating on this in the Psalms says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There's design, intentionality. God's created us for purpose. And when we enter this covenant with God through Christ, that purpose becomes ours and realized, and we can live it out. And the last thing he promises is his partnership. How many times you see these phrases by like Jesus and God, like in Matthew 28, where Jesus gives his disciples and us the great commission, where he says, all authority in heaven's been earth and given to me, therefore go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And then what, he, what does he say? And remember, I am with you always. I'm your partner. Where Jesus goes, you're supposed to go. That's following. It's partnership. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises his disciples, look, I'm leaving, but Spirit's coming. And that's my presence on earth. He's with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Partnership. And so what are our terms? That's God's terms. What are our terms? What does God require of us? Here's where it gets a little uncomfortable. He requires righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus tells this to the people as he's teaching, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. What does this word righteousness mean? It means we're right with God. That we do rightly. That we're always just. He also demands holiness. Peter says, just as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. What is written, be holy because I am holy. Holy means pure, means set apart, means we're to be different than everyone else. God is holy because he is completely void of sin. He is holy because he is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He is perfectly loving. He is always just. He's always right. He never lies. There is no sin in him at all. He is, he is goodness. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we are not those things. But we've got to be righteous. We've got to be holy. And the third thing he demands is obedience. Jesus says this in a very sobering verse. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, this is your first time hearing all this. Uh, if you're new, you're probably very uncomfortable because you're recognizing that we've got a problem. We've got a problem. And our problem is simply this. We cannot live up to our part of this covenant because we're not righteous, we're not holy, and we are not obedient. I mean, just look back to this week if you need evidence. Let's say, uh, you know, I got to do a, a, a ride along with you for a couple of days this past week. Well, what are some things you wouldn't want the preacher to see, right? Believe me, I don't want you riding with me either. Yeah, we've got a problem. We've got a serious problem. We can't live up to our part. There's this great covenant for us. We're going to have everlasting life, new life, forgiveness, purpose, inheritance, partnership. It's great. We can't do our part. Scripture says it, Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's, it's not just one or two of us. It's not just some of us. It's all of us. All of us have fallen short. Right before this in chapter 3, Paul says, there's no one good, no, not one. There's no one who seeks God, none who understands, right? That is a problem. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we celebrate Jesus. Because what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus does for us. This was first pictured back in the Old Testament, in Genesis, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And pretty much tells Abraham the same kind of stuff. You know, I'm just paraphrasing here, but he guarantees me he's going to be the father of many nations. He'll be the blessing to all the nations. But Abraham can't live up to his part. So when it comes to time to ratifying the covenant, this covenantal ceremony we find in Genesis 15, God only, God, not only does God walk through the ceremony for his part, then he also goes back and he walks through the ceremony in place of Abraham as well. Because if Abraham did that, he would have just condemned himself to death. Because there's no way Abraham could be righteous, could be holy, and could be obedient. 
In fact, we see that in Abraham's life. You read the rest of the book of Genesis. He, he has some bonehead moves, just like we do. Jesus does the same thing for us. Jesus knows that we're condemned, left on our own. So Jesus steps in as the God-man. And he goes to that cross for you and for me. And God in the flesh dies in our place to take on the full wrath of the Father that our sin deserves. And in so doing, Jesus satisfies our part for us. See so much scripture on this. First Peter 3. It says, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Or another way, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says the same thing. He says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus takes care of our problem. That leads to this ratification of this partnership. Jesus puts this into action through the shedding of his blood. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we know Jesus establishes this. We already read Luke 22 where he says, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood. The covenants were always established by blood. In the Old Testament, it was through the blood path. New Testament is through the blood of Christ. It is through the blood of Jesus this covenant is made possible. So how do I participate? Now, since Jesus is taking care of my part, what do I do? Because it's not automatic. No, just because you're born into this world does not mean you're automatically a follower of Jesus. doesn't mean you're automatically a child of God, as we'll see here in just a moment. So how do we engage with this? First, we trust in Christ and receive him. First, we see John 3, 16 through 18. Verse 16 is probably very familiar, should be. It says, for God so loved the world, or loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes, and that word believe is the word trust, trust, not just intellectual agreement. This is trusting, right? So anyone who believes in him is not condemned. Just read that again. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. Isn't that great? Not there yet. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But everyone or anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So it's not necessarily our sin that condemns us. It is our lack of belief, lack of trust in Christ. We must trust him and receive him. John says in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, he gives them the right to be children of God, to those who believe or trust in his name. That means to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, to trust in Christ alone for your hope, to believe in your heart. He really did come out of that tomb alive, and he is alive today. He is reigning on high 
today and he loves you and wants you to follow him. You gotta believe that, trust that, so much so that it moves you to action. See, we can believe things intellectually and it never really affect us, right? But when you trust something with all your heart, that's gonna have major impact on how you live, decisions you make, the values you have, and that's what, that's what all these words believe are talking about. It's that whole heart trust that requires action. There, it's gonna automatically involve action on your part. And some of that action is repentance. Repent and follow him. When the Apostle Paul met the resurrected Jesus on the road, it wasn't a haphazard, half-hearted experience. He didn't see Jesus go, wow, and then continue on his merry way to hunt down Christians. It changed him. There was repentance. There was that 180-degree turn. When you and I meet the resurrected Jesus through faith, that has an impact on us. That has an impact on how we live. It has an impact on our value system. We begin to, to love like Jesus instead of hate. We begin to, to you know, want to sacrifice our time instead of hoarding it. We want to sacrifice our resources instead of hoarding it. We're ready to give ourselves away for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Christ instead of being selfish with our time, selfish with our relationships, selfish with everything else. There is a change that takes place when you meet the resurrected Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the, his first sermon. And since then, every pastor throughout history wishes they could have a first sermon like this right? Because he preaches the gospel. He's filled with the Spirit. And as soon as he finishes preaching, here's what happens. They heard this, they being the people. There's thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem because they're celebrating Pentecost, which is another Jewish festival. So they heard this. They were pierced to the heart. They were convicted. They realized, hey, something's, I've got to change. And so they, they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? In other words, we've heard this. We know we have to do something. We can't just hear this and do nothing. We can't just hear about the greatness of Jesus, his power, his might, his love, his compassion, his sacrifice. We can't just hear that and not respond. We've got to respond. We've got to do something. So Peter says, repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what happened, 3,000 that day, repented, were baptized, received the Holy Spirit, and followed Jesus. Jesus says in John 12, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, because where I am, there my servant also will be. Don't you hear partnership in this? Partnership. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So that's your part. Trust and receive Christ, repent, and follow him. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's something for all of us. Every day, fresh and anew, amen? Every morning we should get up, trust in Christ alone, repent of sin, follow him. That's an ongoing, the gospel is for every day. It's not just for once. The gospel continues. And there's great benefits. Here John finishes out this section, and First John says, we're writing these things, that our joy may be complete. The benefit of partnership is just an incredible, incredible joy. Incredible joy because of the victory we have in Christ. I love this. This is such a victory passage for me. I love this, Colossians 2, 8. It says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy, 
but if you to see, let me just pause. There's a lot of that going on today, even in the church. A lot of that going on based on human tradition, cultures, culture, just strong influence. When culture starts saying something's right, the Bible says is wrong, we would like to say that's easy for us, but for a lot of folks in the church, it's hard. Based on the elemental forces of the world, not based on Christ. For in him, meaning in Christ, the fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh, and the circumcision of the Messiah. That means circumcision of the heart. It's a transformation of the heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised in him, with him, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Partnership by faith, Christ raises us too. Then we end with Hebrews 13. Talking about this partnership. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So let me just end with this simple question. With all that Jesus has done, with this new covenant available for all of us, have you done your part of trusting in Jesus, receiving him, repenting, following him? If not, what a glorious day to do it. The day we celebrate the whole reason why we can do it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is alive. Let's stand and pray together. Father God, we love you. We're so thankful. So thankful for this incredible gift. Lord, you tell us in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you that in the midst of our death, in the midst of our condemnation, in the midst of our problem that we talked about, how we are incapable of living up to the terms of the new covenant, that Jesus, you stepped in. You stepped into creation. You stepped into eternity. And you did our part for us. You did for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. You lived that sinless life. You were righteous. You were holy. You were completely obedient. And yet you voluntarily went and took the punishment for us being unrighteous, unholy, and completely disobedient. Jesus, thank you for taking our condemnation for us so that now we're free in this moment to trust in you, to em embrace a partnership with you for all of eternity. Where we'll receive these incredible promises. We'll receive the promise of a new life that can begin right now. we receive the promise of eternal life an inheritance, forgiveness of all of our sin, purpose, and to know that 
we're partners with you. You'll never leave us. You'll never abandon us. God, a lot of us have experienced betrayal and being abandoned, but we will never experience that with you. So Lord, I just pray right now, if anyone's here or watching online, that they have never trusted in you, never received you, they've never repented to follow you. God, I pray this is that moment. God, be honored. Nothing glorifies you more than when one of us sinners trusts in you and repents. The Lord, be honored this morning and how we respond to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.